a beautiful, serene summer, sitting by the beach, basking in hot temperatures. Looking forward to it? Get your expectations sorted. The westerlies, you'll have to hold on for quite a bit longer if you're over them. They're also likely to be a feature of the incoming El Nino weather pattern. And forecasters say that El Nino is likely to be one of the strongest in 80 years. It's likely to yield extreme weather later in the year, from tropical cyclones in the Pacific to heavy rain in South America and drought in Australia. Fire and Emergency Incident Controller Stephen Butler says crews could be set for a busy summer with the weather. They're predicting El Nino, so we're um, shaping up for a big fire season. So with that, we need people to be vigilant. Two rare climate events, a positive Indian Ocean bipole and the better known El Nino, have come together and the effects will be felt globally. Kia ora, I'm Tom Kitchen and today on The Detail, we look at the incoming El Nino and what it could mean for our summer why it will be a challenge, and why it actually might not be all bad news. Hello everyone, my name is Chris Brandolino, and I do have the privilege of leading NIWA's forecasting services team. Chris is here to take us through what we should expect this summer and what's leading up to it. September has been a warm month, nationally speaking. It's been wet for some. Just talk to the people in Queenstown. Queenstown remains in a state of emergency tonight. The resort town has had its wettest 24 hours of the century. Gore and Southland and interior Otago. Heavy downpours caused flooding and sparked power outages right across the lower South Island. Paddocks and roads have become rivers in Southland, with a state of emergency declared in Gore. Others have been quite dry, so spring is always a, a variable, changeable season. It's the time of the year when we're going from winter to summer, and during that three-month transition, we're going to experience periods of time where it's closer to winter, and we're going to experience other times when it's closer to summer. For example, in Hawke's Bay, 29.6. The North Island's east coast is experiencing its hottest September day on record. Niwa says as of 2pm, Wairoa reached 29.6 degrees, and Gisborne wasn't far behind on 26.6 degrees, topping previous highs set in 1955. That was the third highest September temperature ever recorded nationally. So that's pretty significant. And then we had snow and cold temperatures not too long after that. There has been a crazy switch in the weather for the middle of the South Island. Heavy snow brought traffic to a standstill in the Lindis Pass and closed roads that only yesterday were threatened by raging wildfires. What we're seeing is spring, and spring's a very finicky and very changeable season. But when you throw an El Nino to the mix it kind of elevates things quite a bit. It's like performance-enhancing drugs for Mother Nature. It just it goes next level. El Nino was emerging. It's now formally, quote-unquote, here, as I use air quotes. El Nino is it's an ocean event, but the atmosphere has to be equally involved. And the metaphor I like to give, and I've given this before, is that the ocean and the atmosphere have to be what's called coupled. And what I mean by that is when we have an El Nino event, that basically means that the ocean temperatures along the equator, say from South America, where the Galapagos Islands are, all the way to the Dateline, that, that water gets unusually warm. Sometimes it takes a while for the atmosphere to kind of acknowledge that. So to use the metaphor, for several weeks, even a few months, we had the ocean at the altar saying, look, I'm ready to get coupled, I'm ready to get married. Atmosphere is walking down the aisle. Now the atmosphere is finally at the altar, and now we have one. The atmosphere is acknowledging, look, there is unusually warm water here, so I'm going to be active and produce rain and thunderstorms, 
And meanwhile, in other areas farther to the west, maybe north of Australia, Coral Sea, west of the Dateline, the water is starting is not as warm or not as unusually warm. So there's suppression or dryness. Okay, so El Nino is the boy, and it's opposite La Nina is the girl. Yeah, actually, you know where El Nino comes from. So Peruvian fishermen would fish for anchovies, right? And they would notice that during El Nino years, which they didn't call it then at the time, it's like, geez, we're not getting a good haul. And they would notice that the worst of these impacts would be around Christmas time. So El Nino, translation, is the Christ child. So it kind of stems from that. So that's where the name, so the little boy, the Christ child, and to your point, La Nina is the little girl. It's the opposite. El Nino, we get more westerly winds, and they're stronger. And we've already seen that. So going back to September, have we seen El Nino? Yeah, we've seen a lot of strong wind events. La Nina is quite the opposite. Our air comes from the east and northeast. That's that's the theme. That's what it favors. And that's from a moisture-rich area. And that was a big reason, not the only, but a big reason why we had all this wet weather you know, fucking think of Auckland anniversary, you think of the Nelson floods, you think of all these big rainfall flooding events over the past couple of years. In large part, that was, I don't want to say made possible, but the odds for those events are elevated by La Nina. And meanwhile, areas farther south during La Nina, such as Fiordland, Southland, Otago, west coast of the South Island, those same east to northeast winds are quite dry. And as a consequence, they had very warm and dry weather last summer. So it, it, wasn't, it wasn't all wet for everyone, but for a good part of the country, particularly North Island, that was certainly the theme. So if you spent last summer bailing out your lounge, or much, much worse, is there some respite from the rain in the forecast? Are we heading to the beach? The answer is yes, but it depends on where you live or where you're going on holiday. We are expecting widespread marine heat wave conditions this year. That usually goes, is at the hip with La Nina. So when you get a La Nina, that tends to increase the odds for marine heat waves in the Tasman Sea and our shores. But we don't have that. What we'll probably see this year are very localized or maybe regional pockets of unusually warm temperatures, ocean temperatures, I should say, and marine heat wave conditions. If that gets you searching for your togs, just don't forget what else likes warmer temperatures. Well, swimmers in the Bay of Plenty are being urged to be particularly careful after a flurry of great white shark sightings in the same area a teenager was killed by a shark last summer. We've just had three straight years of La Nina, and that ended in March. But Chris says it's not a light switch, and we've been going through what's called a neutral phase. Neutral was basically a rest stop on the on the highway to El Nino. We went right past neutral, and we're now in El Nino as of September. We still have these coughs of La Nina every now and again, these big weather events coming from the north. Now, eventually, that went away, and event, now we're in a more formal El Nino state. Now, it doesn't always go that way. Oftentimes, going from La Nina three straight years, six months later to an El Nino, which is going to be strong, if not very strong— that's pretty unusual. It doesn't always happen that way. We, you know, oftentimes we would spend some time in the neutral category, not, you know, a month or two. Where have El Nino's been the most extreme beforehand? There's a talk of <clears throat> the 80s, the 90s. Yeah, 83, 82, 83, 2015, 2016, um, 72, 73, 97, 98. Those are some kind of benchmarks with really, you know, 
pretty strong El Nino. Uh, just give me a couple of headline things of what happened in those most. So here's times. an interesting one. Ninety seven, ninety eight. There was significant dryness and drought. Much of the country, in fact. Traditionally, during El Nino, as we talked about, there is dryness for the, much of the upper North Island and the eastern North Island, as well as the east of the South Island. Those are the areas that favor dryness. Now, on the west of the South Island, there's actually a wet lean. But in 72, 73, that didn't happen. It was dry everywhere. 97, 98, we had more kind of tr- traditional sort of um, expectations in terms of rainfall. A lot of dryness across the upper and eastern North Island, as well as the upper and eastern South Island. And the same thing in, I believe, 82, 83. Now, what was interesting in 72 and 73, before I was born for the record, that was the year in February, February 7th, 1973, we set New Zealand's all-time record high temperature, Rangiora, 42.4 degrees. That was during an El Nino year. So if you're trying to understand what does this El Nino mean, there's opportunity to get really hot for stretches or periods of time. That means book in the bug exterminator. And if you hate the heat, run for the shelter of your air-conditioned office. Otherwise, you sound lovers, a road trip around the east coast of either island these holidays will probably work out just fine for you. Meanwhile, Niwa has just released its outlook for the next three months. It's a continuation of kind of our previous thinking. So for the northern and eastern part of the North Island, we think rainfall is going to be below normal. We're talking about October to the end of the calendar year, New Year's Eve. Now, it doesn't mean that it won't rain. It's just our expectation is it'll rain less than what is typical. For the west of the North Island, a little less certainty. So we're thinking about equal chances for the rain to be kind of normal or below normal. For the South Island, we think the northern and eastern South Island, uh, there's likely to be kind of a dry, called a dry lean, where, again, about equal chances for rainfall to be where it should be normal or below normal. For the west of the South Island, even interior Otago, like Queenstown, we're expecting rainfall to be near normal or above normal. So a wet lean. That ties in with El Nino quite it well. Because you've got the, you know, the westerly winds. That's bringing, exactly right. You know, That's exactly right. Um, rain to the west and then the east is very dry. That's right. Now, in terms of temperature, one of the things that I think will be a hallmark of the next three months and probably beyond, certainly the next three months, is these wild swings a lot of variability. And this goes back to what I was saying before. Spring is inherently a very changeable um, season. You know, Mother Nature is handing over the stick from winter to summer. And that three-month transition is quite lumpy. El Nino makes it lumpier. So what we're going to see, our expectation is that we're going to find these periods of time where it's like really warm, like we had a couple of weeks ago when we had those record warm temperatures. And then the bottom drops out when it gets really cold. And there's probably not going to be a lot of middle ground. So we're probably going to see these wild swings where there's one or two, three days, two, three day period where it's exceptionally warm, even hot. And then we see much colder temperatures. So in terms you know, of growers, agricultural interest, we could see things like unusually strong cold snaps well into spring. Maybe even some unusual episodes where snow falls to low levels. And then surrounding that, it's like, let's go to the beach because it's so stinking warm. What about those growers Chris talks about? After such a devastating year, what can they expect? For farmers and crop growers, it might spell bad news. If we dry out suddenly and the ground goes hard, nothing will grow and we'll have no spring flush, which will make life a hell of a lot more difficult. But there's a better outlook for fresh fruit and veggies. Jerry Prendergast is the president of United Fresh, a pan-industry body. 
He spoke to me back in March after Cyclone Gabrielle and told me they'd had the most significant range of weather ever. But how has it been since then? It's been what we would call a relatively normal winter in terms of uh, growing conditions. In saying that, we've also had a lot of waterlogged land. During that period, the winter season has been relatively kind for green leaf vegetables. And I'm talking about planting. So just to put into perspective, if you're planting a green leaf vegetable, that's anything from a cabbage, a lettuce, a collie, uh, right through to perhaps um, silver beet, spinach, celery. It's about between eight to 14 weeks, depending on which crop you have in the ground. Some of the speciality crops will grow on the shorter time, around the eight or nine weeks. Now, good plantings have gone in during winter. They haven't had what's called greater than normal weather conditions during winter. So whether you're in the main growing regions of vegetables, which is primarily Pukekohe, uh, Central North Island, they call it Porofenua region, or Tasman, or down into the Central Otago, all of those regions have been quite successful with their plantings. And that's actually bringing us to the point where we're feeling quite confident that that crop is looking relatively stable and strong. I always have to have this disclaimer now. I recall talking about this in January 23 when we had those two devastating events. We just need to be careful about saying that all of that bad weather is behind us because this brings up the subject of our summer um, El Nino effects, which mm. we're potentially in. The reports from the likes of um, Niwa, they are saying, look, that dry weather is coming. The El Nino effects, which is predominantly a longer period of dry, and in short, it is quite positive for some of the crops going into summer because dams are full, uh, water tables are high, you know, the ground is not dry. It hasn't been dry through winter. It's just been normal. So it's quite a positive effect provided you've got good irrigation. Some of those farmers uh, could be challenging if they don't have good irrigation, but the big growers that produce the majority of the product for us across the country have got good irrigation systems and they're prepared and ready for um, those situations. They just need lots of water under the ground or a good dam full of water, which is looking very promising at this point. Yeah, because what a lot of people think, you know, if there's a dry, long, dry spell, you're going to get a drought. I mean, how would that affect yes. fruit and veggie yes. going? Well, we'd cope with a reasonably dry summer. It, you cannot beat good consistency with rain to deliver what your crops need. It's much more efficient, much more um, kinder on the crop growth if you get good spells of rain. But if we do have a dry summer, that is going to be advantageous this year. Uh, one driest summer is going to be okay because I say the ground is so saturated. And that would be a different story if that carried on. And look, the last thing I want to make a statement in saying is, oh, a good dry summer is going to be the right way to go. The last thing we need is a constant steady wind with high temperatures, which actually then take the extremes. So it's a little bit of an unknown, but we're sitting in a good position and it's looking positive at this point. But when you talk about those extremes uh, with high winds, what could that mean if there were those extremes? Well, once you get a dry ground and high winds, no matter what sort of vegetable or fruit it is, um, summer fruit, apples, do not like rub, so that's tree rub. That causes either scarring or damage, and then you've got the potential for rot to, to kick in and also just the visual appeal. For vegetable crops, you get some good windy periods when the ground is relatively dry, and those crops will lay down on you and won't actually um, perform to the way they should do. Yeah, maybe a cabbage or a, 
collier or lettuce will be okay. But some of those, you know, imagine producing spring onions, celery, spinach, silver beet. You don't want heavy, windy period blowing them um, for a sixer. So it's a bit of a balancing act. It's a tough gig being a grower because they have to accommodate and account for all of those circumstances. Can we go through some of the different fruit that is picked in summer and, you know, sure. how uh, El Nino could affect them? Because my understanding with El Nino is it's more, you know, stronger, more frequent winds from the west, and that makes it pretty dry in the east and a bit more yes, rain in the west. Yes. So west coast rain is not a problem because um, anywhere across the west is generally a place where fresh produce is not growing. Oh, okay. And if you think about summer fruit, so we'll talk about two major growing regions. The majority of the crop comes out of Hawke's Bay and central Otago. And Hawke's Bay starts around about December and runs through to January. And central Otago starts about mid-January and runs through to uh, March. Our expectation provided we have kind weather conditions building up to that, is looking very promising in terms of the crop. We're not going to produce any more trees in that period, but if the yield continues to be good based on the weather conditions, i.e. you've got less fruit dropping, um, better quality fruit on the tree because it's not being rubbed or scarring or damaged, so you don't have any rot issues, relatively dry conditions, and the fruit is able to draw its water from the ground, out of the tree um, with a little bit of irrigation, the results are quite positive for a good, dry, warm summer. Summer fruit loves that warm weather. It actually brings on the fruit, it increases its sugars and brings the colour up and delivers a good crop. What we don't want is we don't want those summer rains where that crop is getting uh, saturated um, and then deep, um, heavy sunlight is coming out and you find you'll get rots in those situations because that's creating quite a muggy environment. The other crop, of course, in summer is berry fruit. It's something like a 60-40. Probably 40% of uh, berry fruit now is grown under cover, not in a glass house, but a covered growing environment, and 60% is grown outside. For the majority of the crop being 60% grown outside, we want good, warm, long summer days. You just don't want that rain. Mm. Um, strawberries in particular, uh, raspberries uh, and so on, don't like that rain. And we saw last year, we saw a major uh, frost come through in October. Blueberry growers in Waikato have held crisis meetings after frost destroyed much of the region's harvest this year. So the Waikato was hit extremely heavily with some of the biggest frosts over a period of about four days, which um, really knocked the blueberry crop. It was really tough on the early strawberries that were sitting in the ground waiting to um, fruit. Um, or in some already had fruit on them. And we also saw the hoarfrost go through central Otago about that same time, which really was tough on the um, the budding for apricots, and that actually brought that apricot season down. Now, there's no signs of that at the moment. We're right on the cusp of October, um, and as long as the weather gods look after us, we could be in, as I say, for berry fruit, um, a reasonably good fair crop, so we might expect some slightly more reasonable prices if, uh, you know, yeah. it's a good hot summer. A good warm summer with good irrigation and good plantings now, which everything is sitting um, and looking to fit that uh, model. Uh, we'll see reasonably fair pricing across the board for leafy green vegetables. Certainly fair compared to where they had been um, and what we've experienced over the last 12 months. So what about other risks? 
Here's Niwa's Chris Brandolino again talking about potential wildfires. One of our partners is Fire Emergency New Zealand, and we've been working with them to kind of get prepared for the upcoming fire season. And their expectation is that kind of in those same areas I talked about that has a reduction or an expectation for reduced rainfall, Upper North Island, Eastern North Island, Upper South Island, Eastern South Island, there was an elevated fire risk in those areas uh, for the spring season. So that's something we're concerned about. We've been working with MPI and farmers saying that, look, now's the time to think about a plan. You know, luck favors the prepared. And there's another component, and that's the Indian Ocean Dipole. Yes. Can we get nerdy here? Let's get nerdy. Oh, so the Indian Ocean Dipole, it's El Nino's cousin. All right. It's El Nino's cousin, but it's in the Indian Ocean. It's it's kind of the same thing. There's an area between Madagascar and India where the water gets unusually warm. And then there's an area northwest of Australia where the water gets unusually cool by Indonesia. Right. And because of that, that kind of uh, pattern, unusually warm water in the West Indian Ocean, unusually cool water in the Northeast Indian Ocean, that creates a flow on effect where that results in dry weather in New Zealand. So between this, what we call a... So there's a positive phase and a negative phase and a neutral phase. When you have an El Nino, like we do, which is expected to be strong or very strong, and you have a positive Indian Ocean dipole, what you're doing is you're effectively turning off the tropical tap. Maybe not turning it off completely, but you're basically putting up a wall and saying, we're not going to have much connection or much input from the tropical north. And as a consequence, we're going to really shut down a source where there's a lot of moisture. So we're going to rely generally on Australia, maybe some fronts from the Southern Ocean to bring our rainfall to New Zealand. And that's a big ask for Mother Nature. If you're really reducing where the fuel is coming from, the tropical north, you're going to reduce your rainfall. The last time we had an Indian Ocean dipole, a positive one that was this strong, was back in 2019, 2020. And there were many areas in the North Island that had meteorological or severe meteorological drought, particularly from January to about March, a three-month period. Extremely dry conditions have hit much of the North Island and parts of the South Island in recent months. And in some areas, including central and southern Hawke's Bay, the situation remains dire. And any just any advice for, you know, everyday Kiwis as we go into this yeah, Same. just I'll uh, put my fire and emergency hat on. You know, check us all right before you light. Um, we got Guy Fawkes. We have Labor Weekend coming up. And I think as we near the end of October, and especially as we get into November, we are going to see dryness start to become more um, more of a concern. And so just be careful as you're camping, lighting fireworks. Don't do goofy things. Just be sensible and smart. And if you rely on tank water, if you're a farmer, really start thinking about a plan in case dryness or drought does emerge where you live. And for on the other end of the spectrum, if you're in the west of the South Island, interior Otago, parts of Southland, what we saw not too long ago in terms of flooding, unfortunately, we may be at risk for additional episodes of that. So on the other end of the spectrum, in those areas, the west of the South Island, interior Otago, Southland, you have to consider yourself with potential of too much rain or flooding. So those are some things to consider. That's it for today. I'm Tom Kitchen. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. Today's episode was engineered by William Saunders. Our producers are Alexia Russell and Bonnie Harrison. Thanks to Chris Brandolino and Jerry Prendergast. Kākati anō.